0: welcome back to Revive School. Here we are in Lesson 14, but yet it's the first chapter of a new book. We are in James 1. We are in the general letters. Yes, we have Mindy's painting over here from Kevin? Hebrews. From Hebrews. And now we're jumping into the book of James. It's going to feel like kind of randomness, right? Hebrews, James, we're going to get into 1 Peter at the end of the week, 2 Peter, then we get into 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then Jude. General epistles. Kevin, now, if there if there's the general epistles, what are the other letters in the New Testament? Uh, they're from Paul. Uh, the Pauline epistles, the letters that are written by Paul. So these letters, okay, sounds super obvious, are not written by Paul. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so funny, but people are like, well, why do you call it the general epistles? Well, the reality is, is because they're not Paul's. I mean, that's really what this thing comes down to. And so James is one of those today, you guys, that's like, if there's a pot... We're going to go ahead and just stir it. <laughs> like when you think about the book of James, uh, first of all, uh, you know, if you're new to, to revive school, we always try to take a lot of the time in this lesson of the historical backdrop. You know, the, the uh, you know the authorship, who the title of it, all these different backdrops that a lot of people don't typically tend to go to uh, when you're studying a text, and in particular, this book. Uh, is so essential about knowing who is the author writing to and why is he writing to them because you get into this one section it's so controversial guess what happens some people just throw out the book of james literally in fact we'll get into that today so uh, lord i just pray for this this uh this week i pray for the five chapters that we get to unfold every single day and father would you speak Not only through Rich and Kevin and Tom and I, but Lord, would you speak to the hearts of those that are listening? Give us fresh eyes. Give us fresh perspective of the book of James, specifically James 1. Speak through us right now, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So the book of James, uh, like all general epistles, uh, except for the book of Hebrews, was named after the author. We do know that it was written by a guy named James. How do we know? Because it looks at James 1, verse 1. It says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies himself clearly from the very first verse. Now, this is interesting. James MacArthur, where I I do a lot of the the backdrop through, study through. uh, It says that there are four men named James in the New Testament. Okay, so... (laughs) <laughs> just, just kidding. We don't know. No, we do. There's only really two candidates for the authorship of this epistle, but nobody really considered, um, you know, one of the guys, James, called James the Less, the son of Alphaeus, found in Matthew 10.3. We, we don't really kind of consider him. We kind of just check him out. So that would be one, okay, that we would just check out, okay, son of Alphaeus, not into the equation, right, Kevin? Uh, so who, who are we? What are our options? Okay, well, one of the other options, okay? James the More. James the greater. One of the other options, okay, is James the oldest half-brother of Jesus. That would probably make him qualified. Uh, Go to Mark 6 verse 3, if you don't mind. Mark 6 verse 3. Uh, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James? Jose? Uh, Joseph, Judas, and Simon aren't and aren't his sisters here with us, so they were offended by him. So this could be one of the writers, he, just so you know, this same James, who's the half-brother of Jesus. Kevin, if you go to Matthew 13, verse 55, again, trying to paint a picture of who's writing this because this really is an incredible picture once we can begin to grasp this. I mean, look, here it is again, Matthew 13, 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his half-mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Judas, okay, there's another language here. It could be uh, the language of Jude. Okay, so James is the half-brother to Jesus, which would also make him the brother to Jude. Okay, kind of a cool picture. Uh, who wrote, obviously, uh, the epistle that bears his name in Jude 1. So you could have two family members from from Jesus, like actual family members, half-brothers. Why are they half-brothers, Kevin? Because Christ was born of them. Virgin. A virgin, right? So, mm, that makes it a little bit harder. So, if he really is the brother of Christ, the half-brother of Christ, in John 7 verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him, this would be James. James would be the guy, Jude would be the guy, at some point, not even his brothers, at some point, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm God's son, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, can you imagine that reaction? Can you imagine? No, But later on in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, you got to understand, though, there became a shift. At some point, James, half-brother, did not, right? He did not believe in Christ. But then it says later on, later on, Jesus actually appeared to James and the apostles. And what happens, Kevin? 1 Corinthians 15, 7, after Christ appears, he believes. So there's a shift. James goes from non-belief to belief. So here it is. This is the scenario. And here's the cool part about James, you guys. James became a key leader in the Jerusalem church. If you go to Acts 12, verse 17, uh, many, many times, you guys, there's illustrations in Acts 12, 17, uh, look, motioning them with his hands to be silent, he explained to them to how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Report these things to James and the brothers. And then he departed and went to a different place. The point was, is that James was a pillar of the church. This is after Christ is already dead, buried, came back to life. You know, he's sitting at the right hand of the father. Now, James is a part of one of the leaders, the pillars of, yes, the Jerusalem church. So that would be three instances, um, uh, three instances of uh, other, other possibilities. James the less. Uh, you have James, uh, he was, what was the other one? The father of Judas. Then you have the half brother, James. And then there's another one that's called James. Rich, I didn't come up with this. John, John MacArthur says, uh, James, the just. Okay. James, the just. Now, interesting enough, uh, because of his, um, devotion to righteousness, James, the just was murdered and martyred, excuse me, in eighty sixty two. 62. Okay according to the first century uh, Je- Jewish historian Josephus, okay, uh, comparing James' vocabulary in the letter that he wrote uh, in reference to Acts 15, and thus the epistle of James. The point is, is, these are your options. There's writings that can be compared in Acts 15, language, and into the book of James, but those are your four options. Guys, what do you think? Go with the brother of Christ. You know, what do you think, Rich? Yeah. I'm going to go with the brother of of Jesus or half brother. Here's what we do know is that James did believe. James was clearly exposed to the life of Christ. Clearly was interacting with Jesus on a regular basis. And we do know that in James 1.1, he's writing, you guys, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. When that says that, we're literally talking about the tribes of Israel. Okay, this is what we're talking about. Now, when we talk about the, the dispersion, it's Jewish believers that have been scattered it's jewish believers that have been scattered that are literally like you know here we go and they're all over the place and so this is going to sound really funny this is a pet peeve of mine maybe i'm wrong in this people articulate and call them jewish christians okay if they're jewish people they never stop being jews okay So as we've interacted with Jewish people in actual Israel, they prefer to be called Jewish believers because Christians in their minds are Gentiles who accept Christ. Jewish people who embrace Yeshua, who believe in Jesus, are now believers that are Jewish. Does that make sense? So in this context, he's writing to Jewish believers, those Jews that have accepted Jesus, have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're all spread out. So... Kevin, does that make sense? It's kind of a contradiction if you put those two words together in the same phrase. Okay, so absolutely. Now, James probably, according to MacArthur, wrote this epistle to to believers as a result of the unrest recorded in Acts 12. Okay? Roughly, Acts 12, they would say, is in AD 44. Now, if this is written, you got to think about this. There's no mention of the Jerusalem council talked about in in, uh, Acts 15. So you would think, Kevin, in the book of James, like if this is written uh, after the Jerusalem council, correct, you would think he would mention something about that because he's in the heart of all of this. Does that make sense? So because of that, uh, which the Jerusalem council happened in AD 49, okay, then they could say that James was probably written between Acts 12 and Acts 15, in other words, Acts, uh, AD 44 through 49. OK, that's how they would come to this conclusion. It's an interesting perspective. So AD 44 through 49, Acts 12 through Acts 15. We know that he's writing to uh, the believers. Some people would say that the recipients uh, of this of this group, the Jewish believers, they were scattered because of the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 7. OK, there's a thought that as soon as Stephen's uh, martyrdom took place, what did they do? Well, because of persecution under Herod Agrippa of the first, they had to scatter. So 15 times, this is kind of crazy, throughout the book of James, his audience is listed as brethren. Kevin, he's writing to believers. You have to understand when we get into this language of faith without works is dead, you have to understand he's already writing to people who have embraced Christ. That's what it just, it it drives me crazy when you take verses out of context and you don't know who he's writing to, and then you can say anything you want based on one verse. And so this is kind of the understanding. Remember this. James is clearly writing to a group of believers. Now, Kevin, this is crazy. I'm going to just kind of hit the pause button on all this. Uh, there's lots of themes in, in all the book of James. You have born again. Uh, you know, Warren Wearsby says we're supposed to examine ourselves in the light of the word. Uh, we must obey. We got to continue to walk out through these trials. And then here's this word I want to emphasize, testings. There is all kinds of testings in every single chapter that you're going to see in James 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. In fact, at the end of James, you're going to hear me go back and talk about the testings a little bit more in detail than I am even today. But this is kind of the context. So what's our word in all of this? What is our word in all of this? Because this is really one of those books. Uh, and in fact, let me, I, I don't know if I go there. I think I have it here, you guys. Um, surely I have it I'm here. I'm sure it's there somewhere. I'm sure it's here somewhere. Where? why don't I have it here? Uh, I, you know what it is? I get to it tomorrow because of James 2. Martin Luther doesn't like this book, but I'll save that for tomorrow. In, in all of my notes, Rich, you're right. I'll get to it tomorrow. So what's our phrase? Our phrase is, this is an interesting one. It might be, remember the pot that we're going to stir it. It might make you cringe a little bit. Okay. Our word is this, perfect... Law. Now, I, I capitalized it, but this is not capitalized in Scripture. I just did it because I was writing this. James 1 25, it says this. Uh, but the one who looks intently, okay, as believers, into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but the one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. So the Scripture says, if you intentionally look Into the perfect law. Well, Kevin, we know that after Christ came, death, burial, and resurrection, we know very clearly that the old law is done. So when it says you look into the perfect law of freedom, this perfect law of freedom is not talking about the temple and the sacrifices and the offerings. He's not talking about coming before the Lord, trying to keep up with the 613 laws. He's like, no, 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 I'm talking about something more. You have to look at it with the lens of Christ. And in fact Jesus says in Matthew 5:17 this perfect law you guys is Christ. Matthew 5:17 it's pretty clear we've been talking about this all throughout revised scripture Jesus says don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. So Christ says I'm not coming to get away with it. What does he say? He says I did not come to destroy but to fulfill When you look at this text in James 1.25, James 1.25 is truly playing off of Matthew 5.17. Jesus is saying the perfect law is me. I am fulfilling the law. I am the perfect law that only brings about freedom. Interesting enough, Kevin, if you go to Hebrews 10 verse 1, we talked about this a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago. Hebrews 10.1 says, since the law only has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of these realities. It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Well, why? Because the law in doing the sacrifices is not perfect. It can never make what the worshipers uh, be released from their sacrifices. That's why they have to do this year after year after year, which makes it a flawed law, right? That law is a shadow of the things to come. Those things to come is the perfect law of freedom, which is in Christ. What we like about this text, you guys, is it talks about this freedom that only Christ can offer. Kevin, if you go to Galatians 2, verse 4, Galatians 2, verse 4 says this issue. A little bit here. Hang in here. Arose because of the false brothers smuggled in who came in secretly spy. Look at this on the freedom that we have in on Christ in order to slave us. So people were spying on people who had the freedom that was only in Christ. It's the perfect law of freedom. Just a couple more verses. Galatians 5 verse 1 talks about this freedom as well. Christ has liberated us to be free. I love this picture. It's the perfect law of freedom. Kevin When we're talking about the perfect law, it's only through the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. And then you can experience freedom. Then if you go back, Kevin, uh, please, to James 1.25, this is important. In order to understand this, okay, in order to persevere through the, the testings and the trials, in order to understand how to do and walk out these good works, it only comes through the perfect law of freedom that Christ can offer. And what do we have to do? Look intently at it. And we have to persevere with this. That's how this thing works. And James is going to talk about the perfect law of freedom in every single chapter. And when you do this, Scripture says you'll be blessed. Kevin. When I hear, look, intently, I'm like, it's a focus. That's, that's another word that I would think. It's, I got to keep my focus. Yeah. And in fact, in James 1, verse 1, it says, James is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this because he's implying equality. He's, I'm a slave to, to, uh, to God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Alright, I'm writing to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. I'm writing to the twelve tribes that are articulated in the book of Genesis. And he says, now there are believers in each in each tribe. In other words, there's a remnant. And they're spread all over the place. I, I do think it's interesting. I always wondered how how does this letter get distributed? They're all over the place. How how do they find these guys? I just, I love just even thinking through that. And he says, greetings in verse one. In verse two, and really two, three, and four, you're going to see this testing of the faith begin to unfold. And so he says, consider a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. In other words, guys, I want you to have this. I want you to consider. I like what Wearsby says. He writes up some key words. He's like, I want you to consider with a joyful attitude, you guys that you're going through these trials. Like, can you imagine if all of a sudden you're going through this, uh, you know, this... Kevin, I keep going back to your dishwasher. Your dishwasher breaks, you know, or your, uh, uh, the thing underneath... Uh, garbage yeah, thanks. The garbage disposal. Like, consider it a joy. Now, Kevin, in this context, okay, the various trials more likely that he's talking about are not dishwashers and not garbage disposals. He's talking about because of who you are in Christ, you're going to experience persecution. So yes, this can apply, like you get this context, but he's writing to people who are spread all over. And if there's a small remnant, there's a really good chance that people are going to, yes, actually mock them, insult them, and maybe even hurt them because of their faith in Christ. So I need you to consider it a joy. And then he says in verse three, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, I mean, look, the garbage disposal, you could lose your faith over it. I'd hope not. I'd hope not. It's more than likely when a town surrounds your home saying, do you believe in Yeshua? Or somebody says you're going to lose your job because you say you believe in Jesus. Like, know this, okay? There's a knowing you have to consider. You have to know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So when you go through one period of time, what does it do? It allows you to build your faith muscles. You know, Tom, it's you doing CrossFit, like you're working out, like, in order to get to the next season, you gotta go through this to endure more. It's the, my, my daughter Maya, who's running cross country. She doesn't complain as much, you guys, about running. Why? Because her legs are starting to get used to the torture. <laughs> you know, running, she's like, yeah, my warmups are now two miles every morning. You know, it was a mile, now it's two miles. Like, the point is, is that you have to consider it joy that you get to actually be insulted and uh, assaulted, both of them, and persecuted because of your faith. And know that God is producing endurance. And then look what he says. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. I love this image. Like you're going through this testing. Okay. Now here's this language. Okay. You're going through this testing so that uh, you are producing endurance, but this endurance has a plan. That plan is, is that, Kevin, that you and I would grow in the Lord, that we would be mature and that we could walk out what he's actually originally called us to. It's kind of a really cool picture. It's interesting to me, at the ounce of suffering, at the ounce of trials, many believers don't go through the endurance process. Many people don't go through the testing of faith, which is why I believe we don't see mature believers at times. I mean, it's the whole Hebrews, you guys, isn't it not? Hebrews four and five when he and in six. Remember this where he's talking about like you guys are still stuck on the ABCs of the elementary of the gospel. You should be teaching this. But when anything gets remotely hard, theologically, practically, physically, nah, I'm out of here. Let's go back to comfort. Man, all of this, God is doing this so that we can look more like Him. So here's the issue, though. When you go through this process in verse 5, I mean, to me, this is what makes sense. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. So we go from this testing of faith to now all of a sudden, Kevin, I... I need some drastic wisdom in all of this process. Who's he writing to? Jewish believers who need to know, how do I deal with this situation? What this is, and I like what MacArthur says here. He says this, he says, God gives it, uh, I'm sorry, this is Nelson's commentary here. God gives it not necessarily this wisdom uh, on how to get out of trouble, but rather insight on how to learn from these difficulties, to learn from these trials. And for me, that's how you mature. God, what are you teaching me in this moment? Instead of saying, God, why am I doing this? Or God, why am I have to go through all of this? God, what are you teaching me? Because really the book of James is, is one of the most incredibly practical books of the Bible that you'll find. It's so down to earth. How do I get through this? Ask him. But in verse six, and I love this picture. And really here you have a picture of Mindy that we're going to get into that she's painted. But let him ask in faith without doubting. Ask God for wisdom that he's going to show you what you need to learn. But don't do it with doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea. Look at this. Driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. Isn't that an it's an awesome picture? Awesome painting. So when you ask, don't be like you're going to be tossed here and there and back and all over the place. You know, it says in verse seven, no, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. So I'm going to keep backing up in this. There's a time of testing of faith. I'm going back all the way to verse two. Consider it joy when you go through these times. Knowing, though, that these times, the testing of your faith, okay, in this process will actually lead to and produce endurance. You know what that, that says to me? It doesn't say it will produce and it's done. It produces So to me, Kevin, we're always growing in this. It doesn't matter if you're 20, 30, 40, 60, 80. If you're still walking through this, you can expect these things and consider it joy. But here's the deal. What's the whole point? So that you would be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And if there's an instance you don't really know what to do, then you ask for wisdom. But you ask for wisdom in faith. If you don't ask for in faith and you're like, well, maybe, maybe God's going to give it. (laughs) You're going to be tossed around on the sea, and you, you really shouldn't expect to receive anything. And in verse eight, it says, an, indec- an indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. In other words, you're, there's this, uh, Nelson's commentary says, there's this double-mindedness. That's literally, you have two souls. <laughs> How else do I put this? God, give me wisdom, but I'm going to depend upon myself. That's what that means, you guys. I'm going to do this myself. It's really this, you're depending upon the world and you're depending upon God. And then there's this inner conflict that never settles well. I don't know, guys, you want to comment on any of this before we move on? No. Okay. So when you get to verse 9, 10, and 11, really what you have is two examples of of uh you know the rich and the poor going through these trials going through these situations and then when you jump to verse 12 you're going to you're going to see a person who endures these trials uh you'll you actually will be blessed so he walks through. If you pass this test, you will receive the crown of life that God promised to, to those who love him. So, Kevin, now we're going to start getting into It's going to start feeling a little bit more Proverbs ish, but yet it's building trials, tests going through these situations. Here's an example. But look, if you endure, you will pass the test. You're going to receive the crown of life. Yes, Kevin, the crown of life that can only come through Christ. Now, look in verses 13 through 18. Okay, what you see, and this is kind of this this process of uh, and really this is what uh, Warren Wiersbe says, the processes of temptation. Like, what does this look like? First of all, the temptations are not from God. I want you to make sure everybody understands this for God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So then he begins to walk through this process of temptations through desires, through disobedience, walks through deception, even to the point it says in verse 15, even to the point where it gets to Death. It's an unbelievable process, you guys, of what this looks like to go through temptation. When one thing leads to another, you give birth to sin, sin is fully grown, and then it gives birth to death. Like, it is not good to give into the temptation that's crouching right outside your door. There's a difference between testings and temptations. Temptations, Kevin, are not from God. Testings, I believe, are so that we could endure through this time. Satan wants us to clearly fall. So here's the challenge. And why, why do we talk through like this? Because in verses 19 through 21, you guys, he begins to walk through. How do you fight this battle? Understand this. Everybody must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger for man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. I'm in mean, James 1 20 in verse 21 says, therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil excess, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. Yes, God's word, this is going to sound drastic, will actually save the believer's soul. Yes, why? Because, Kevin, it points to Christ. This is the context that we're in. So if you want to go through these trials, if you want to go through these testings, you got to receive the word of God in order to go through this so that you're not tossed around on the waves, back and forth, which is what's happening to American culture. We're not based on the word of God. And so we're flippantly going back and forth and back and forth. And that's why I love verse 22. It says, "Okay, but once you receive the word, but be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves in verse 23. Because if anybody is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. This is huge. You guys, if you're not doing what the word of God says, you're just looking at your flesh. He looks at himself and it goes away. And immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But now here it is, James 1.25. This is what we started talking about at the very beginning. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom, when you look into the life of Christ, when you look into the word of God and you persevere in it, it is not a forgetful here, but the one who does good works. This person will be blessed in what he does. You guys, we can't look in the mirror and look at ourselves. No, no, no. What we need to do is look into the perfect law of freedom. Persevere with this through the life of Christ. This person will be blessed in what he does. That's what James 1.25 says. When you look into, intently, focused on the perfect law of freedom. It says in verse 26, if anybody thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, Then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. And finally, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That right there, you guys, verses 26 and 27 is one of the most practical ways that you can walk out the perfect law of freedom. There's no other way around it. Love on uh, orphans and love on widows. But none of this happens, you guys, if you're focusing on your flesh you might be still stuck back in the trial saying, how am I going to get out of this? Rather than asking for wisdom, God, what are you teaching me so that I can endure in this process so that I can love on others, specifically orphans and widows? It's a big book. It's a thick book. It's a profound book. And yet it's super practical when you focus on Christ. All right, guys, I'm excited to start going through the book of James. I hope you'll join us tomorrow as we dig into one of the most controversial chapters. Ready for this? in all of scripture. James 2, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks.